My name's uh, Hugh Morris, I'm Chair of the Clinical uh, Research and Academic Committee of ABN. I'm at the ABN 2016 conference, which is themed uh, around the seven ages of man in Brighton. Uh, we just had a wonderful session talking about the approaches to various neurological disorders in young adults, and we had a marvellous talk from uh, Dr Nick Fletcher from the Walton Centre on movement disorders in, in young adults. So I'm joined by uh, Dr Fletcher now. <laughs> Um, Nick, in your, in your talk, you gave a fantastic overview of, of many different conditions that we need to think about in teenagers and young adults with movement disorders. I wonder if you might sort of frame it f a bit for us in terms of the clinical approach. So if a teenager comes to your clinic with dystonia, can you talk us through how you might approach that clinically and what the priority um, tests and steps are in, in taking that forward? Well, I guess with a young person with dystonia, your first thought, is it primary torsion dystonia or is it something else? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the way to think about it. And so a helpful approach is to, th is to consider what are the kind of limits of primary torsion dystonia and what is allowed within primary torsion dystonia and what would make you think about an alternative etiology. In a sense, this has become more pressing because of the advent of more invasive therapies like intrathecal baclofen and deep brain stimulation. So the stakes are a bit higher now for getting this right than they were maybe 20 years ago. I think that you need to review the clinical history very carefully, especially if it's a person who's transitioned over from paediatrics. You've got maybe very incomplete information uh, about uh, age of onset. You're going to need the parents to help you a bit with that if it came on when they were much younger. So at what age did it come on? Where in the body? Was it lower limb? Was it action and dynamic dystonia initially? And did it become more generalised later? And remembering that age of onset will determine distribution of the dystonia within PTD. So early onset, more likely to be lower limbs, more likely to generalise. There shouldn't be any other neurology involved, apart from maybe some tremor. Um, and they uh, shouldn't be any cognitive change, there shouldn't be delayed milestones, and there yep. shouldn't be a lot of pain or fixed deformity early on. Yep. And then if, they, if, there's, if any of these rules are broken, or there's other neurology, or a lot of pain, or a lot of unexplained fixed dystonia, then you've got to think about, is it a secondary dystonia? Investigate for that. And always consider, is it a psychogenic dystonia? Yeah. And what sort of proportion of patients coming to your clinic with dystonia in that sort of age group do you think actually have a, a psychogenic or a functional, functional dystonia? Well, I think more than we used to think. I mean, the traditional teaching was that it didn't happen, but I yeah. think it does. I don't think the numbers are huge. I think it's a few percent, probably. Uh, yeah. But I think the things that worry you about that are very rapid generalisation in an adult beyond the age of 20 would be a worry. A lot of pain, a lot of fixed deformity, so fixed clenched hands, fixed inverted feet. Um, these are worrying features and the, as I said earlier, the reason for getting this right is you don't want to subject somebody like that to DBS. Yeah. And what are the potential uh, problems in, in patients with functional disorders having inappropriate treatments like DBS or baclofen? Well, I mean, intrathecal baclofen, if you use it much, I mean, we don't in our centre, but some places do, and DBS, of course, you're exposing the patient to significant iatrogenic risk, yeah. plus lifelong commitment to that therapy with battery replacements yeah. and all the potential later complications, infection, and so on. Also, I think that if it's a psychogenic dystonia, and that then once they've been implanted with all that kind of thing, the chances of resurrecting that situation then must, must become smaller, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. 
And obviously one of the things um, that we're sort of being increasingly faced with is the prospect of genetic testing for these conditions. Yep. And obviously uh, that's an area of, of interest and uh, of yours. Can you say a little bit about what your approach now is? And I appreciate it's a very rapidly changing field in terms of genetic testing and how useful that is. It is. I think in young people with dystonia, the first thing is, is it a TOR 1A um, mutation or a you know, DIT1 mutation? There's some controversy to, in my mind about whether that predicts or doesn't predict a, fa- a better response to DBS. I think possibly it doesn't, although some suggestion it might. Uh, and then you've got uh, THAP and GANAL and things like this, which are more likely to be maybe more focal upper body survival yep. and so on, uh, with the potential for a bit of generalization later. Do we, have we got into the regular habit of using panels and things in dystonia patients? I think not yet. I think if, they, if you're happy that the patient's within the kind of phenotype of primary torsion dystonia, yep. I must say we don't use genetic testing very much. Yep. Whereas if they're in the secondary group, then I yep. think that's much more important. Okay, that's great. So just moving on then to sort of um, uh, other hyperkinetic disorders in terms of people with early onset career form movement disorders, perhaps with some myoclonus and jerks and these things I think can be a spectrum in, mm. in children that we see mm. uh, coming through in teenage years. Could you talk us a little bit through your approach to, to people with earlier onset hyperkinetic disorders? Um, yeah, just before we leave dystonia, one thing I wanted to say was that, of course, you don't want to miss Wilson's disease because yep. it's treatable. You've got to think about that. And you don't want to miss dopa-responsive dystonia. Yep. So you want to give them a therapeutic trial of levodopa if there's any doubt about that. Yep. Um, moving what, on to... What, and what sort of dose do you normally recommend? Well, I think this is all a bit murky. I would tend to... I'd only really feel happy if they'd had 600 milligrams of levodopa a day for a few months, okay. for maybe three months. Okay. That way, it's done and dusted, and it's, yep. and it's recorded in the notes, and you don't have to revisit it. Yep. But it's very important not to miss that. Yep. And, and d- ditto Wilson's, but everybody should know that, really. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of career form disorders, um, well, obviously, the main, the, the main in, a, in a young adult, I mean, you've got to think about Huntington's, of course, although people in their 20s is a little bit early for the classical presentation of Huntington's disease. They're more likely to be maybe younger, younger adults, more likely to be rigid, yeah. Parkinsonian and so on. But yes, you've got to think about that. You've got to think about non-genetic causes, yeah. like oral contraception, infection, autoimmunity, um, uh, and so on, and medications. Uh, neuroleptic drugs um, uh, and so on. And then with the, um, uh, say a young person who's got career form movement disorder and not much else, well, benign hereditary career, young onset, dominant family history, not very much progression, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. You're gonna see it very often. Um, you've got the career acanthocytosis issue, check the CK, test the reflexes for neuropathy, fresh blood film for acanthocytes. And then you've got this more recently emphasized condition, ADCY5, um, autosomal dominant, jerky, mainly upper body, career form, dystonic, almost myoclonic looking movements. You might mistake it for benign hereditary career. You might mistake it for hereditary myoclonus dystonia, upper body, jerky movements, dominant history. And, but the difference is, Obviously, hereditary myoclonus dystonia, a lot of them are going to have a sarcoglycan mutation, yeah. but some of them don't, maybe 20% don't. You, the responsiveness to alcohol is quite helpful with the myoclonus dystonia, associated psychiatric comorbidity. The ADCY5, these facial movements, used to be called familial dyskinesia with facial myokymia. It isn't myokymia, it's more a jerky myoclonic career form movement. Sleep aggravation exacerbations in relation to sleep are a feature um, without the psychiatric comorbidity and without 
the responsiveness to alcohol. I suspect some of these are undiagnosed, and it's a thought in the clinic with these type of patients. Yeah. Check yeah. the DNA for ADCY5. Yeah. And how many people in this sort of group of benign hydrochoria, myoclonic dystonia, ADC5, how many have been referred to you for consideration of DBS and invasive therapies? What's the sort of situation with that now? I think quite a few hereditary myoclonus dystonias are referred for DBS because their response to oral medications is, is, is generally disappointing yeah. and they can do very well with DBS. Um, I think, again, this ADCY5 thing has become slightly more important because it's in this group when you're contemplating DBS for what you think might be hereditary myoclonus dystonia, that you might be looking at an ADCY5. Now, yeah. does that respond to DBS? We don't know. Anecdotally, one or two of them have been treated and have done all right, but I think yeah. there just isn't the data there yeah. to say at the moment. And benign hereditary career, again, that's not going to respond to DBS. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. And that usually doesn't cause serious I mean, disorders. Quite, quite a benign condition that yeah, usually doesn't um, cause major problems. So then that's great. And then um, another thing that you then um, touched on as another area you were taught was really approaches to Parkinsonism yep. in people in their teenage years and their 20s. And also you sort of touched on an area which is a big interest of mine, which is how the phenotype of, of Parkinson's disease-like disorders is different in people in their teenage years and 20s to yep. what you might see in their sort of people in their 60s or 70s. Uh, do you want to say a little bit about um, how, how you think the disease is different in, in that sort of age group and how your treatment approaches might change yeah. for someone who's 25 or 20 as opposed to someone who's 60? I think the, the, big, the big difference is that uh, if, it's, if it's early onset Parkinson's disease, their, their response to medication is going to be very different. Yeah. So they should be levodopa responsive, but they're at much greater risk of the advent of motor complications, yeah. on-off fluctuation, earlier appearance of severe dyskinesia. Arguably, you know, we have this long-running thing we've had for 20, 30 years now, haven't we, about agonists and yeah. levodopa as initial therapy. But I would still be more wary of levodopa early on in a young patient. I would try yeah. and give them a spin on a monoamine oxidase inhibitor yeah. or an agonist, accepting that they might not do well and they yeah. might get side effects. But try and hold off the levodopa because you know, don't you, that there's going to be trouble ahead with yeah. motor fluctuation. And I think that perhaps we don't consider subthalamic DBS early enough in these patients because yeah. once they get into that cycle of bad motor complications, probably nothing else is going to get them out of it. Yeah. Apomorphine, yeah, okay for off periods, but probably not for dyskinesia. I know there's a school of thought that says you can use apomorphine as a levodopa sparing agent. Yeah. I've not seen that work terribly well no. often. And, um, of course, duodopa, well, who knows? I guess that would be an alternative option for them. Yeah. But these are the rather than sort of flog, flog the patient along on increasingly problematic oral medications to yeah. think about these other interventions earlier. Yeah. And in terms of, I mean, one of the things that I think is in our patients' minds, it's for any given therapy, is how long is it going to be effective for, how long, what's the long-term outlook, particularly with very young patients. With DBS now, in terms of putting DBS into people in their mm -hmm. 20s, you know, in terms of how often batteries need to be changed and the long-term outlook yeah. in someone who has DBS at quite a young age, what's the sort of current feeling about, about that? Well, you, increasingly ones in younger patients, of course, they should do better over the sort of five to ten years. We don't really have great data beyond that. Uh, with re rechargeable batteries now, that's become less of a problem. So a rechargeable battery will last nine, eight or nine years, yeah. uh, as opposed to the sort of fire and forget older ones, two or three years. The problem in older patients, of course, in their 60s, I mean, you don't tend to do DBS beyond 70, but patients in their 50s and 60s, the worry, of course, is they'll be overtaken by non-motor features yes. of the illness. 
Um, and sadly, that one sees that all too often, don't yes. you, with d dementia and uh, yes. autonomic problems and so on. In younger patients, that would hopefully be less of a worry. So yep. I think, it's, again, it's an argument for maybe considering these interventions earlier. Yeah. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, was there anything else that you'd like to sort of bring out in your talk for the, uh, for the listeners uh, to the podcast today? That no, I think the, the, the main thing is that in younger adults, it's not to mistreatable diseases like doper-responsive dystonia and Wilson's disease. Yeah. And that the phenotype of neurological movement disorders can be a bit different in younger people, and one needs to bear that in mind. And if it's odd or unusual, then there's a much wider differential diagnosis that one needs to think about. Okay, Nick Fletcher, thank you very much. My pleasure.